This episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is brought to you by Maestro Classics, the creators of Stories in Music, a fun recorded series made for children and families to discover the thrill of classical music together. Featuring the London Philharmonic Orchestra, Maestro Classics brings over a dozen exciting stories to life with the help of a narrator and colorfully illustrated booklets. The Maestro Classics Stories in Music has won over 50 national awards and garnered praise from parents, grandparents, teachers, and children alike. All Maestro Classics CDs are available at the Met Opera Shop at Lincoln Center and online at metoperashop.org. To learn more, visit maestroclassics.com. Orpheus's task is a simple one, to save his deceased lover Eurydice and lead her out of hell without looking back at her. But even the simplest of quests can come with personal challenges. On this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, join us as we journey to the underworld in Gluck's influential opera Orfeo ed Eurydice. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Join us at the Met Opera Guild's annual luncheon. On November 20th at Cipriani 42nd Street, we'll honor Martina Arroyo and Teresa Stratus on the 60th anniversary of their Met debuts, with appearances by Harold Blackwell, Stephanie Blythe, and Eric Owens, and a musical tribute by Eileen Perez and Matthew Polanzani. This luncheon will be a highlight of the opera season. Tickets start at 275. For reservations, call 212-769-7009 or visit metguild.org slash diamond. The ancient Greek Orpheus myth has inspired a vast array of artistic works, and Christoph Gluck is known for contributing his own adaptation to the canon. Gluck's Baroque adaptation explores the profound nature of grief, the power of love, and the rousing spirit of redemption in our two young lovers, portrayed on the Metropolitan Opera stage by mezzo-soprano Jamie Barton and soprano Hei Kyung Hong. I'm Stuart Holt, and on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, lecturer Tanisha Mitchell guides us through Gluck's elegant masterpiece. So good evening, everyone. Good evening. So this is different. You all are impresarios and maestros tonight. You probably said, well, I just came here just to see the opera, but you didn't. So I am going to pass around batons for everyone. And while you do that, thank you. Okay, here you go. Thank you so much. So I want to thank you all so much for having me. I'd like to say a special thank you to Stuart Holt and Mackenzie Cole for being such wonderful people. So let's get into this. So you are here to see Orfeo. 
But I bet you probably never realized um, uh, this. When we think of the star of the show, a male star of opera, okay, we normally think of this. So we're going to stop him because you guys are not here for him. But everyone knows who this man is. This is the lovely Luciano Pavarotti. And when you think of opera and you think of a male star, we think of him. But if you go way back in time, way before Luciano Pavarotti, you had another voice that was the superstar. That's countertenor Bejun Mehta performing one of the famous arias from tonight. And the difference is because in 1762, there was a certain singer that was famous, and he was not a tenor, and he was not a countertenor. He was the castrato. And I'm sure a lot of you, you know what that means. But <laughs> I just want to show you um, this is from the 1994 film Farinelli, and um, just in, in the flash to show you the star power that this type of voice had back in the day. This is a reenactment. you all will be doing tonight but there wasn't that voice without a sacrifice you know you had thousands of young boys who were castrated at the time and they were castrated because they wanted to maintain that soprano voice and so you have the combination of getting rid of the male glands underneath. I'll just leave it at that point. And so you have that combination and then the combination of a male stature. So you keep the voice of a boy and you have the male stature where you have large lung capacity. Some of the things that we are about to hear um, in, in our next clip you know, the gentleman, he's an excellent singer, but he has to take a breath. That's natural. But what was said was that this type of voice was able to sing over a minute and a half without breathing. That sounds exhausting to me. But however, this guy was the star at that time. And, you know, uh, one of the guys that really 
brought in and showed off this voice in what was called operasaria, in which you had one star, which was the castrato, and you showed off the, his ability to be able to sing these long lines and to sing them in a melismatic form. I would say what melismatic is when you sing more than one pitch in a line really, really fast, is this gentleman here, Mr. Handel. And Mr. Handel, what he did, he wasn't the only composer, but he was one of the main composers. He exposed that voice a lot. So I'm just going to show you a little clip from the Metropolitan Opera. This is 2011. And just to give you a background of this in Rodolinda, the character Berta Rido, he has just um, regained the throne and he sacrifices, well, he spares, excuse me, one of the people that he thought was his friend, just to, in a Tanishaism. And he sacrifices, he says, oh, I'm going to sacrifice you, then I'm going to stop. Well, I want you to tell me if this sounds like somebody who's about to kill someone. somebody, I've spared your life. Does that sound like it? It doesn't really. And so that's why you are here today, because this gentleman here says, you know what? That stuff doesn't make sense. Even though you are exposing the castrato, you're, you're taking, you're showing what the castrato could do, um, this, that doesn't work for opera. And during this time, we had a, a movement of embracing what's natural. And a lot of people said it's not natural to castrate someone and to get that sound. Now, he didn't go as far as to stopping any castrato for being in his, in his opera. Obviously, the first Orfeo was a castrato. But he, what he did, he decided to abandon all of those melismas and long lines. And he went for elegant simplicity. That's a Tanishaism. So our cast is, I like to show the cast. We have Mark Wigglesworth, uh, British conductor known for his excellent work at English National Opera. We have Jamie Barton. Jamie Barton is singing her first pants role. You might have heard her in, as Frika in Wagner's operas, and you have Amore Hera Heising Park. Uh, she made her debut here a few years ago, and if you have not seen this production, she descends onto the stage. That's just a little clue. And we have our veteran, veteran singer, Hei Kyung Hong, who made her debut with the Metropolitan Opera in 1984. So, you guys are going to be impresarios before you're a maestro. Not yet. Not, maestro, not yet. You're an impresario now. So 
An impresario is basically the manager of an opera, and they are also responsible for hiring whoever is supposed to do the hiring, um, hiring the singer, excuse me, and um, thinking of the covers and also the financials. Well, my question is for you guys. We have as Orfeo, Jamie Barton. She is a mezzo-soprano, okay? And we all know in opera, you need a cover because things happen. You never know. So who is the cover? Is it A, Wallace Junta? Is it B, John Holiday, countertenor? Or is it C, Deanna Damrau, soprano? Who do you think the cover would be? This is quite interesting. Well, you are correct. It is John Holiday. And it, this is one thing that's special about Orfeo. It's one of the fewest roles where you can hire a countertenor and then turn around and hire a mezzo-soprano. That doesn't happen a lot in opera, but it has to do with the history of it. Gaetano Guadagni, one of the famous countertenors of his time, it's not countertenors, excuse me, castrados of his time, was the first Orfeo. But what happens with this role, you have gender fluidity. That's another Tanishaism that I made up it's very prevalent today. So like we were talking about, you have your countertenor here. And then you have, or, this is one of my favorites, one of my favorites, Janet Baker as Orfeo, 1982. I love Vision Mater too. This is one of the few roles where you can do that. You can hire a countertenor to do it, and you can have a mezzo-soprano who is fluid in that type of repertoire um, in order to, you can hire that. You can't do that for, let me think of a pants role, um, Mozart, Carabino. Ever heard of a countertenor being hired to do Carabino? Or Octavian? in Rosencavalier. Doesn't happen. So the history of that has caused that. The Metropolitan Opera has done this over 99 times as of tonight throughout its history. And oh, there's a trivia. Tonight, it was 1970, there was a famous mezzo-soprano that performed Orfeo on October 24th, 1970. Um, can anybody tell me? You're like, no. Marilyn Not Marilyn Horn. 39 years ago, it was Grace Bunbury, 1970, October 24th. So, Marilyn Horn was also a famous Orfeo. Can you all tell me another famous Orfeo? She's from before Marilyn Horn and Grace Bunbury. Long before? Long before. She's known. Thank you, Risa Stevens. You're good tonight. I might call you up here to conduct with me. So I like to give you a glimpse 
because I'm from the music library, and that's where I got my education, most of it post-school. And in the music library, you guys don't know, it's, it's really the brain of music in the Met. And what it does is they prepare all of the music. So um, Robert Sutherland, the chief librarian of the Metropolitan Opera, every rehearsal, every performance, he has a setup. This is an orchestra plot. I know, it looks like a football play-by-play. -play. I got that too. But tonight, I want to show you. This is a rehearsal um, from our C-level uh, stage. And so uh, you're going to hear two orchestras tonight, believe it or not two orchestras. You have the main orchestra. That's your orchestra, guys. You're going to conduct to them. And you have your orchestra, too. You will not see orchestra, too. It's on stage right, away from the, uh, the audience's sight lines. You won't even see them, but they are there. And we'll get into that. Our orchestra, too, compared. It's like a little ca uh, chamber orchestra just to compare. And we have strings, we have a harp, and a clarinet. And we'll get into that. We'll conduct both of them tonight, believe it or not. So after the opera is done, you can tell Mark Wigglesworth, listen, if you need me to cover you, I got you. Okay, so let's get on into it. Orfeo tonight, there are two versions of the opera, believe it or not. You are listening to the 1762 version, the original version. The 1774 version has a little bit more um, recits. It has more ballet interludes, and some of the notes are a little more decorative. I'll just leave it at that. Che farò senza Eurydice. There are two versions of that. And I found that out by mistake, because I was trying to learn it, and I had the version that we're normally, uh, that we're, we're used to hearing, it has a, the middle section, um, has, it's much higher. Well, that is not the original version. The original version is more simple, so you will hear that tonight. It's three acts, so you guys know it's about an hour and a half. There's no intermission tonight. No intermission. So I'll get you all out of here so you can prepare because uh, no bad. Well, you could go to the bathroom if you want to, but I'm just saying there's no intermission. So um, in its simplicity, we have, with the exception of Amore and the chorus, our two main characters, Orfeo and Eurydice in English, um, are ancient Greek mythological figures. And um, the thing about these two characters is they represent to me, they represent the uh, love, obviously, and temptation, because Orfeo is given a challenge that hmm, we know that he could not deliver on. And it's also in its simplest form tonight, everything that you hear Everything that you hear represents what is happening on stage. And you guys probably like, yeah, that's opera. No, that wasn't opera before that. You know, if you have somebody like um, that gentleman from Rodalinda who's singing, 
I've caught you many, many times with all of that melisma. That's to show off the voice. But in its simplest form, everything you hear. And you probably are wondering, well, how is that? I'm normally, I'm used to that. Well, this is what to listen for. So in our act one, I'm not going to do everything because obviously it would be a spoiler for you. Act one, the overture starts, and I want you to listen to the overture, just a snippet of it. the overture doesn't represent the story per se at the, the beginning. Sometimes, with the exception of Verdi or Wagner, I would say, from what I can think of, because they like to use a lot of symbolism that you start to hear again later on. Sometimes they don't do that. But watch what's going to happen. Because in Act 1, act, act, the overture is before the acts. And it sounds sunny and bright. It's happy. And then all of a sudden, you hear this. The first one, it's bright and sunny. And the second one is dark, has to do with major and minor keys. And so I believe, I'm not Gluck, but I'm just saying, I believe that he did that contrast to show you what the opening act opens to. And so I'm not even going to tell you. This is from the 2014 um, version of Orfeo and Eurydice with Bejun Mehta. And I just want to show you. I'm not even going to tell you what happened. You probably knew, but this is it.
So that darkness, what did it represent? A funeral, death. You don't have to be a musician to know what you hear. And in the production that you will see tonight, there's no body on the stage. There, it's a funeral, but you will see that they're mourning her loss, Eurydice's loss. So that is one thing to hear. The next thing to hear, to listen for, is the chorus. The chorus drives the plot. And they drive the plot in such, he does it in such an inventive way. When you see this, the chorus is really the one that opens. They are the ones that are, they're telling you what's happening. And Orfeo, he is in his moment of grief while they're telling you, you know, this is what this is. This is a funeral. So that is act one. Now, what we don't realize is that by act two, and I'm telling you now, Orfeo has got the chance. This is the famous decision that um, he's making. He has got the approval by Jove to go to the underworld and to regain his wife. Boy, do we wish we can do that. Well, anyway, um, he goes under, and the thing, this is the biggest thing that he has to, um, he has to do. He cannot look at her, we all know that. He can't look at her and he can't tell her why until they get back above ground. And we all know how hard that could be. Or maybe some people look at it and say, oh, that's easy, just don't say anything to her. But once he gets to the underworld, okay, I want you to tell me, is it beautiful or is it a harrowing uh, experience. Now, you guys have seen this before, so tell me based on what you hear. And also, you will also hear a predominant instrument. I want you to tell me what is that instrument. Told you to get your ears ringing. Here we go. No. And that instrument, what did you hear? The harp, absolutely. And the harp is in orchestra too. The harp is not even in the pit. So when you hear it, it's going to be stage right. So just to show you, orchestra two backstage, where you guys can't see them, you have two violin ones, two violin twos, two violas, one cello, one bass, one clarinet, and one harp. The clarinet is not playing this time. And the harp represents something. Now, in the case of here, you'll see, but then I'll tell you in the production what it represents. And an extra thing to tell you, the harpsichord from Orchestra One also plays along with those instruments underneath, all of the strings. Now, this represents Orfeo's entrance into the underworld. Here we go.
So, what does the harp represent? Which instrument? The lyre, the lyre. But in this production, Orfeo has a guitar. So, don't tell Jamie Barton that I told you. It's not her playing that guitar. It's the harp that's accompanying her. And she's playing along with the harp. And so, we wonder, what does the Furies have to say? We saw what they had to say. We're not letting you in. And then Gluck does something with call and response. So we're going to practice something. Well, I'm going to be the maestro, and I'm going to be the singer. So this is what you are going to hear. All right. So I want everybody to say no. No. OK. No. No. All right. I want you to say it as if I asked you for $2,000 right now. No. All right. OK. When I point to you all, I want you to say no. Okay, watch this. So you have this beautiful interlude, and Orfeo says, I plead for you to let me in. You know, uh, Furies, this is Tanisha-ism now, just let me in, have mercy upon me. So he sings. Now you get to see what exactly happened.
Morfeo has a problem, because what do the Furies say? No. No, you can't, you can't go in. But then something happens again. We revisit this. does that represent to you all again? Oh, let's see. So based on what you heard, got that ear again. Are we in a dark labyrinth, the Elysian fields, or purgatory? Yes, we are in the Elysian fields. The Furies, they said, yes, we feel sorry for you, so we will let you in. And the Elysian Fields represents peace and beauty. It is the last spot of, I would say, Hades, but it's the beautiful part. It's where all of the famous, um, that's what they say, the famous aristocracy, those that did great things on earth are. It's like heaven. And here is the Elysian Fields. to what you heard before. Like I said, everything that you hear represents what is happening. And so he's able to get Eurydice and bring her back. And, you know, she's wondering, like by Act 3, uh, he's bringing her back to the upper world, and she's wondering, why won't you look at me? Don't you love me? What's going on? And he just says, you know what? I can't take this anymore. And so, this is the fatal act. Mm-hmm. 
I guess he forgot that if you do embrace her, if you look at her, she dies. And that's where we have that famous aria, Che farò senza euridice. So I want to show you, dear maestros, because you all are maestros, on my right, your left. That is the full orchestra. Now, because you have a full orchestra does not mean that everybody plays in for everything. There are times where they have musicians who are not playing at a certain time. Uh, sometimes we call it a tacit. Now, in the case of Che Faro Senza Euridice, we have no horns, no trombones, and no woodwinds. The woodwinds are in blue and purple, and there's no timpani. We just have the harpsichord and all of the strings. Oh, dear, 
close out, and if you know, don't tell anybody. Will Eurydice wake up or not? If you know, don't tell anyone. This is to close out tonight. Um, this is from 2009. This production actually made its debut with the Met in 2007, but this is from 2009 with Joyce DiDonato and the director and choreographer Mark Morris, just to tell you a little bit about the production. I'm with Mark Morris, the director and choreographer of today's Orfeo. Hi, Mark. Hi, Joyce. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Thank you. I'm so excited for today. Now, this is a piece, Orfeo, that you've repeatedly come back to in your career. Mm. What is it that excites you about it? Well, let's see. As a lifelong opera queen, it's one of the great, great, mm. important, radical pieces of opera. Mm. And the simplicity of the story, the directness of the music of this Gluck, I've done several different versions of this, of this score. This is as original a version as it can be. The directness, the simplicity, the music, which is about love in one sense, but more it's about the overwhelming power and inevitability of music itself. So speaking of this music, mm -hmm. what is it that speaks to you? Because we have a lot of instrumental music, mm -hmm. and I find that in the production you find this beautiful fluidity mm -hmm. between the singing and the dance. How do you find that balance? Well, you know, for some reason, a long time ago, dance was dropped out of opera. It used to be in every, you know, there's dance music in every opera in the Baroque period, early classical period. It was a big part of the show. It was to be every art combined. Mm -hmm. And I love that idea. So that also music from, the, from this period is all based on uh, sort of springing dance rhythms, whether it's meant to be danced to or not. The singing, the music that's sung and the instrumental music is all based on uh, dance, dances of the period. And so that makes it all lively. And as we know, it do doesn't mean a thing if it hasn't got that swing. <laughs> Is there a particular challenge to working with us opera singers who are used to sometimes standing and singing to get us free in, in finding the movement so that it is a seamless approach to the piece? Well, I have no problem with stand and sing, frankly, you know, especially doing something really hard. I don't need people lying on their faces all the time. <laughs> but really, as long as, the, as long as the whole spirit of the, of the piece is animated musically, you don't have to do a lot of extra stuff. I try to keep it as sparse and as direct as I can. Brilliant. Now behind us we have the members of the Metropolitan Opera Chorus and each is dressed as a different historical mm -hmm. figure. Can you tell us a little bit about that concept? Well first of all they're so fabulous. Yeah. Be sure to listen to each individual. The other thing is um, that what I mean for them to be, Isaac Mizrahi designed the costumes and I decided that it should be everyone who has ever died. So the dancers and the chorus are the friends of Orpheus and Eurydice. They're also the heroes and heroines in the Elysian fields, and they're all of history, all together. Lovely, and it really becomes the ultimate Greek chorus that way. I hope so. Oh, lovely. Mark, thank you so much for joining us, and we're going to be with you every step of the show this afternoon. Great, thank you. Thank you. Thank you all very much. I always like to thank Robert Sutherland, who helps me out with the orchestral stuff, because I could not do it without him. So a special thank you to him. He's actually working tonight. Okay, thank you all very much. <laughs> thank you for coming and enjoy the opera. That was music librarian and lecturer Tanisha Mitchell exploring Gluck's Orfeo ed Euridice.
To learn more about our programming, visit www.metguild.org. We would love to have you attend one of our programs here at Lincoln Center. I'm your host, Stuart Holt, and thank you so much for listening.